All right. Good morning, Doxa Church. My name is David. I don't know if I've, if I've met all of you. Um, if you haven't met me, I'm one of the guys on staff with Doxa Church. I get to come up and teach the Bible every once in a while on Sundays. Um, this morning, we are continuing our study through James. So whether you're here kind of for the first time um, or you're kind of tuning in on, online even for the first time, that's kind of where we've been. We're kind of journeying through this book written by James, the brother of Jesus, to the early church. And this morning, James wants to have a conversation with God's people this morning. Just fair warning, it's not a comfortable conversation, it's not an easy conversation, it's actually a conversation that no one wants to have and no one wants to be around when the conversation is had, okay? But this is God's word. And so I want to actually just set this up for us, and I want us to kind of picture this scene that kind of is happening, like unfold in James. So I want you to just picture this, like you walk into church on a normal kind of Sunday morning, and even kind of, you know, get rid of the masks, like just get rid of all of that. Think back to the before time, okay? (laughs) Before time. What was it like? You just show up, it's beautiful outside, there's a slight breeze, you have a pep in your step, you are excited. It's a good day. You're over here to hear from the word. You're going to worship and you're going to sing without a mask. It's going to be awesome. You're going to see your friends. An exciting day. You're enjoying the service. Eventually you sit down, right? Ronnie nails the announcements. Eventually, you know, the worship's over and there's this guest speaker that comes up and it's James. He is an apostle. You've heard of this guy Like the brother of Jesus, right? Really important leader in the church in Jerusalem. And he's come. And the first thing he does is he walks over to the pulpit. And as you're kind of getting, you know, your, your, your notes ready to like take some notes, he says your name. He just says your full name. And you kind of hear it, but you're not, you're not sure if he actually said it right. Cause you're like, wait, did he just say, and then you kind of look up and he just says your name again. And he says, come up here. And you're like looking around like, did he, did he say that? And everyone's like, yeah, you should probably go up there, <laughs> right? So you get up from your seat and you're like, you're like, I don't really know. This is kind of weird. I don't normally do this, but hey, this is a guest speaker. Maybe he's got some door prizes or something, right? Like you don't really know. So I'm going to get up and you walk up over here to the front. All of the eyes are on you. You're up here with James and he says to you, he just says, I know. And as he says those words, like something in your heart kind of begins to like just race a tiny bit, right? Well, what, what do you mean? You know, and so you ask him that, you just say, well, what do, what do you mean? And he says, I know. And you start to kind of get like a little bit animated like inside of you, but you're trying to kind of keep it down on the outside and you just say, well, what, what do you mean you know? What are you talking about? And he just says, I know about the affair. And all of a sudden, there's this, this kind of whispers that start to go through the crowd. And you're standing up on stage, and he just says, I know about the affair. And so as that happens, your, your heart ba- elevates even more. But at the same time, you kind of have this peace because you're like, okay, good. That's not me. I, I, that's not me. He's talking about someone else. I'm not like that. And then so you tell him, you say, James, you're talking about someone else. That's not me. You have the wrong person. But he pulls out this envelope. And it is stacked to the brim, inches high with documentation. There are phone records in here, text message conversations. And one by one, he starts to kind of unfold this evidence about you. 
They're your phone records. He goes through the text message threads and he shows the pictures, he shows the conversations, and he pulls out hotel receipts that have your name and your cell phone on them, your credit card number on them, videotapes, photos. And at the end of the presentation, there is a massive pile of evidence that is stacked up on the stage. And as you sit there, you're still in denial about this, right? And so you start to actually kind of freak out and you actually start to go out into the crowd and trying to convince the people around you, no, 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 that's not me. That's not who I am. I'm not like that. But even as the words come out of your mouth, you stare back at the mountain of evidence that is piled on the stage. And you see with a depth of clarity and a depth of pain that it is you. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't deny it. The evidence is literally falling off the stage. It's so vast. And what is heaped up in front of everyone is proof of who you really are. That you are an adulterer. You are unfaithful. And the stack of evidence that shows that you have not just been unfaithful once, but again and again and again and again and again. This morning, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the early church, one of the leaders, he's going to talk to us about an affair. And he will bring evidence and he will bring proof. And it's not just one that happened in the past, but it's actually one that is ongoing. And it is an affair that deeply affects your life because it's yours. It's not a comfortable message. It's not a feel-good message, but this is a gospel message. And actually, the reason James brings this to us this morning is because he knows it is actually the only message that can possibly transform us into the kind of people he means to transform us into. Okay, it's three things. One, the evidence. Two, the betrayal. Three, the verdict. Okay, this is how he starts this conversation. Look what he says in verse four. He says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Because this is his question. He just asks it, right? Pretty normal things in all of our lives. What causes quarrels and fights among us? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you. Now, this isn't a new theme, right? If you've been with us for the last few weeks, for the last chapters, James has been kind of opening up issue after issue that is in the lives of God's people, right? The way we use our tongues, our, our worldly wisdom, our, our selfish ambition, even kind of our partiality of how we treat some people better than others, our posturing around others. And now he kind of summarizes kind of everything he's been saying, this kind of horizontal conflict with just these two words, fighting and quarreling. And what James is going to do, he's going to take these things that are kind of happening on the surface of our lives, kind of happening in our relationships, in our world around us, and he's actually going to kind of drill down and say, this is actually what's happening in your heart that's causing these things. And so first, what is he seeing? Well, he sees these two things, quarrels and fights. Now, what is interesting is he doesn't address a specific issue, right? He isn't saying like, hey, last week, John and Larry, you got outside and you were talking about politics and you got into a fist fight don't do that, right? He's not talking about a specific instance. He's actually talking about just a general tone within the church. 
He's addressing us as a whole. He's saying, I see this in you. I see this in us. Right? The way that we speak to one another on social media, the way that we argue with our spouses, the way that we can kind of fight with our roommates, this kind of low-lying frustration of whose turn it is to do the dishes, the way that we get into arguments with our siblings, right? Very normal patterns of our life. We know this. We are people who fight and quarrel to some degree all the time, right? It's not that weird for us. But he points at that and he says, why is this happening? Now, this is a super interesting question, okay? Because every time we have a frustration or an argument or a fight with someone big or small, there is always a reason. There's always a cause. And the reason is always very clear to us, right? It's because of them, right? We know this. This is why we're fighting in the first place. It's because of them, right? Whether it's their, their ignorance, their toxic political views, their laziness or selfishness, their personal issues. Maybe even it's kind of more intimate than that. It's like their lack of care for me. Whatever it is, you can fill in the blank. And we can do this, right? This isn't an, an abstract thing. Like we all have people that we sometimes find ourselves in conflict with. And so I just want you to take a, a minute and just think about who's that last person for you. You know, try to like narrow it down to someone in the church. Maybe it's someone in a close relationship with you. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your roommate, a friend, but someone who's kind of in the family of God and you have this conflict with them. Maybe it's not even an outward conflict. Maybe it's just an inward conflict that you're having they don't even know about, right? Think about that. And you ask the question, what is the reason for that? James gives us an answer and he says that it's because of something happening in you. It's not them. It's because of something happening in you. And he says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now, this word passions, it's actually a really interesting word. It's this Greek word, hedon. Now, hedon, it just literally means like pleasures, right? But it's where we get our word hedonism. And so there's this kind of idea that there's this desire and longing that you have within you, these passions that are at war within you, but it's a desire, desire for worldly pleasure, right? Things that are material, the physical, earthly, like earthly comforts, like sex and drink and affirmation, success, money, fame, influence, things that the world kind of holds out to us and says, these are the things that matter. These are the things that will bring you life and joy and happiness and wholeness. We're not alien to these things. We know these things. And James says that there is actually a war inside of you, kind of a war of these worldly, earthly, hedonistic pleasures, desires that are spilling out into your life. It's just this like really big junk drawer term that covers a massive range of human desire. And this is actually exactly what he says next. He says, verse two, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He's saying the passions that are at war within you are causing you to be at war with the people around you. And then he says, you do not have, so you murder. Okay, that's strange. <laughs> Did anyone like stop when you heard them read that? Were any of you like, wow, that's a really messed up church. Okay, like what is going on here? Is he saying that there's this like this roving band of angry people in the early church who were just murdering people? I, I, don't, I don't actually know, okay? Maybe there was. I don't think that's what's going on. 
okay? What James is doing is he's saying that the passions that war within you, the desires that you have in your heart and mind that are leading to fights and they are leading to quarrels, those are the same passions and same desires that actually lead to murder. And this is actually exactly what Jesus teaches us about the human heart and when he teaches us on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, right? He says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill, but I say to you that if you are angry with someone else, you will actually face the same judgment. It's the same judgment because both of those things come from the same place, whether you are like angry in your heart or you actually take a gun and kill someone. He says that the thing I'm talking about, Jesus and James, they are saying that both of these are actually manifestations of the same fundamental problem in us. That inside of us, inside of our hearts and our minds, there is such a frenzy of passions, of pleasures, worldly desires, that it's like this war that is bubbling up inside of us that's spilling out into everything about our life. And you don't have to look far to see the evidence of this, right? He's like, do you ever fight, quarrel? Do you ever get angry? Do you ever kind of use your tongue in a way that slanders those around you? It's just one example, okay? He could have used a ton of different examples. He just kind of picked one of these things that's kind of common in our lives and saying, hey, fighting, quarreling, you know that. The point isn't about the fighting. The point is it's just one of the things that points to this deeper issue in us, and it's this war of passion, this unmet desire. But now he's going to turn a corner in the text, okay? So follow what he does. So he's saying you have these desires that are not met, and you kind of reactively treat people according to that unmet desire. But look what he says next, the end of verse 2. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This is what James is doing. Like you need, like hear me, this is what James is doing. He is drilling into our hearts and he is showing us that the war that is going on in our lives is actually kind of this external manifestation of an inward war that is going on with our creator. He's saying you don't have because you don't ask. He's saying there's something broken with your relationship and your communication with God. You're not, you're not asking him. You're not treating him like your provider and your father. There's this disconnect between you and God, this broken relationship. But he says it's more than that. It's, it's more than just a communication issue. Because when you do actually ask, you ask wrongly. He says you ask to spend it on your passions. Meaning that when we actually do go to God and we start to communicate with him and enter into relationship with him and we actually have this kind of, this asking communication with him, the goal of that is not to gain deeper relationship with him, but it's actually to get him to give us what we really want in our hearts to give us what we really are in love with. And it's not God. It's the world. And so he wants to talk to us about our betrayal. In verse 4, he just says, this, this thing, this external thing that I'm digging down deep and I'm saying what's really going on in your heart is that you are adulterous people. 
So verse 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? He's saying these passions in you, they are worldly passions. They are a desire and a love for the things of the world, not a desire and love for the things of God. And he says it's, it's adultery. It's adultery. It's a really strong word, isn't it? One of the reasons that we have a problem with how serious the Bible takes sin is because we tend to think of sin as breaking rules. Right? We think it's like, it's like speeding on a highway or maybe even more seriously, like cheating on a test. Right? We think that there's some kind of like, it's some kind of small infraction or kind of failure to like live up to some kind of perfect ideal or perfect standard. And so we recognize like, I know I'm not perfect. I know I don't kind of fit all, you know, this ideal, but we view it like that. But it's not like that. Right? God's not a judge, like this kind of distant judge who gives us these guidelines and commands for how we should live our life. And because he's not distant and he's not abstract, our sin against him isn't distant or abstract either. But the Bible actually tells us a story about a God who is not just our creator, but who is the lover of our souls. A God who is more like a father who has come near to us and joined himself to us in this covenant relationship. Not just father and son or father and daughter, but actually like husband and wife. This like deep, meaningful, intimate relationship where God has provided for us. He cares for us. He watches over us and he gives us all of himself. In fact, the Bible actually says that marriage between a man and a woman, this like deep, forever binding union, it's meant to be this way. He's saying that along with all the kind of intimacy that comes with it, I put that into the world as an analogy for the kind of relationship that I'm meant to have with my people. So even like the deepest, most intimate thing that we can think of, like a husband and wife in like marital union, he's like, I just put that into the world as like a picture of the kind of depth of relationship that I'm meant to have with my people. And this is the point of all the evidence that's stacked up on the stage. And it evidences itself in the way that we treat people. It evidences itself in the kind of daydreams that we have. It evidences ourselves in the kind of greed and coveting that we have of other people's stuff and their lives. We evidence it in the words that we use against our brothers or sisters who have different opinions than we do. And all of this, James is saying, is a result of a heart that instead of being caught up in love and affection for the God who loves them and has sacrificed himself for them, is instead coming from a heart that is wrapped up in love and desire for the world. He says it's all a result of people who have abandoned the vows and the covenant that God has made with them. It is a result of those who have ran away from the loving arms of God and into the arms and the bed of another lover. It is a result of an unfaithful people, an adulterous people. 
And the message that James has for us is that actually in this situation we find ourselves in, there's no room for laughing. There's no room for joy. But he says instead we should be the kind of people that mourn and weep and are wretched because all of our lives bear the marks of our infidelity. Because we haven't just broken a list of rules. We haven't just broken a list of commands. But at our core, our fundamental problem is that we are unfaithful lovers. And again and again and again and again, we have betrayed the gracious, loving heart of God. And James is standing here and he's pointing to this mound of evidence and it's your name that's on all of it. It's my name. He's saying, you are an adulterous person. That's who you are. Next, he's going to give us the verdict. Because the evidence has been stacked up. The betrayal and the affair have been clearly laid out. And now the question for the people who are sitting in this room, it's a really real question, right? Those of us who have abandoned God and chosen, not just in the past, but like today and the day before and this week, have chosen to love the world instead of him, right? Those people who have abandoned God, those who find themselves currently in the arms of a false lover, what is the verdict on our life? And I want you to like seriously picture that scene. Like just that scene where it's like all of a sudden this, you know, the sanctuary turns into a courtroom, right? And the evidence is stacked up against you and it is not abstract, but it is visceral. It is real and it is damning. You are the unfaithful spouse and it wasn't because of him, right? But his love has always been perfect to you. His hands and his feet, they bear the marks of the kind of love and faithfulness he's always had for you and yet you ran from him again and again and again. You betrayed his love again and again and again. And as you stand there and you are about to hear the sentence, you are about to hear the verdict and the response of God to our infidelity and our adultery. And as James brings his case before you and all around you, as the judge lifts up his gavel to kind of slam down the sentence, the word that rings out in the courtroom and rings down into the depths of your shattered soul is the word Grace. Grace. That's what he says when he slams down the gavel, is grace. It's unimaginable. The evidence is so high against you and it's so deep of a betrayal. And the word that he gives us is grace. That's what he says in chapter 4, verses 5. But he gives more grace. Do you understand how unbelievable that is? It's not the word we're supposed to hear. It makes no sense. We didn't break some rules. We are adulterers. But that's the story of the Bible. 
It is a story of the unfaithfulness and the adultery and the complete betrayal of God that goes so much deeper and so much further than any of us will actually ever know. But at the same time, it is the story of a grace and a jealous love of God for us that goes even further and even deeper than all of our sin. I mean, do you hear how unbelievable it is as the gavel is slammed down and grace is pronounced? God runs to you and he wraps his arms around you and you can feel in his flesh the cost of your redemption, the holes in his hands, his blood-stained feet. Your life bears the marks of your unfaithfulness to him, but his life and his body bears the marks of his faithfulness and love for you. And that is the message of the entire Bible in a few verses. It's the gospel that as far as we have ran from God, he has actually outpaced us and outran us. And wherever we are in our life, we, he always stands in front of us with arms outstretched, eyes filled with love, heart filled with grace. Tim Keller just says it like this. He says the, the gospel is this. It is that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And it is because of this that James ends this section in an unbelievable way. This is what he says. He says, therefore, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you, but draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then he ends by saying, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. How is it possible that a text that starts with evidence for an adulterous affair ends by saying, Humble yourselves under the one you've betrayed and he will exalt you. Listen, it isn't sinful, broken people who God opposes. It's proud people. It's the people that God opposes. They are the kind of people who hear a message like this and they say, oh yeah, I know someone that that message is probably about. They hope that their spouse hears it. They hope the people around them are listening. Hear me say this. God opposes those kind of people. He does not draw near to them. He pushes them away. James says, don't do this. He says, don't shield yourself from this message. Don't protect yourself from this kind of heavy-handed message about who you are. Don't defend yourselves against it or deflect it from you because you don't want it to be true of you. He says, actually humble yourselves under it. Because as people who humble themselves under God, those are the kind of people that God approves of and draws near to. And for those of you who are crushed by this, you're actually overwhelmed by the weight of our betrayal and unfaithfulness. And that kind of list of evidence, that's not an abstract thing in your mind, but you populate that with images from your own life. You know that's talking about you. You feel the weight of this message. 
You're not arguing with James over the state of your life, but you just feel crushed under the weight of that. You have to understand what James is saying is he's saying it is exactly in moments of your life like that. That is exactly when God is drawing most near to you. It's that moment of humility and like utter like hopelessness under the condition of who you are. He says that is actually the moment that God is drawing near to you. And the reason that we all need to hear this is because this is the exact opposite of what we think God is like, isn't it? And maybe I'm the only person here, but like that is the opposite of the way I tend to think in my own mind. God must be like this. Because when our sin is exposed and we see ourselves not just as lawbreakers, but as adulterers, the last thing we think we could possibly do is draw near to God. Because he's the one we've betrayed. And so what we so often do, what I so often do, is we lie to ourselves. And so we we create a false version of ourselves like an ideal version of us a faithful version of us. And that ideal, this this kind of person that we want ourselves to be, it isn't true and it isn't the real us, but it's the person that we wish we were. It's the person spiritually that we want to be, we desperately long to be. And so what we do is we come to God pretending to be that person. And we walk into church and we walk into our our small group pretending to be that person. And we even look into the mirror and we try to convince ourselves that we are, in fact, that person. Because we think that this is the person, this is the version of us that God could love. That that ideal version of us, this kind of mask, this lie that we've kind of lived out and choose to present to ourselves and the world, that is the version of ourselves that God could not just love but actually be proud of and what James is saying and it's stunning is he's saying no you don't understand he's saying he doesn't want the ideal version of you he just loves you the exact way you are with all of your flaws and all of your brokenness and all of your shame Even the things about you that you don't think anyone else knows that you've even tried to forget yourself. He's saying the real you, that is the person that God is jealous for. We think that if we were to take off the lie and honestly and humbly present our sin-filled, lust-filled, greedy, selfish, adulterous hearts before God, then he would turn away from us. How could he not? But this text is telling us that it's actually those things that are about us, those things that define us, they are actually the very things that draw the loving heart of God towards you. This text tells us That it's actually in that moment of vulnerability and fear and humility that actually, that is when God draws near to us. Let me make it really specific. Your sin, your addiction to pornography, your fantasies, right? Your greed, your desire for a totally different kind of life, a different family, a different experience of life, a different bank account, right? Your laziness and terrible life choices, 
your hidden anger and rage, your alcoholism, your abusive tendencies, your love and desire for everything that God opposes. Those things in you, they do not repel God from you, but they are the very things in you that draw his heart towards you in love. That's not wishful thinking. That is the gospel. Jesus did not come for people who are healthy. He came for people who are sick. Why? Because those are the people that his heart longs for and loves. And if you're in this room today and you feel broken and crushed under the weight of your sin, praise God. Because those are the only kind of people that God draws near to. He's not stuck with you. He's not putting up with you. He's jealous for you. And the story of your life, the story of our lives, listen, it, it is a story of unfaithfulness. Not in the past, right? Not like I once was that, but now I'm, a to I'm just totally different. I once lived this really unrighteous life where I was in love with the things of the world and now I just love God. No, he's saying you, you are that today. You're, you're still, like, Jesus has saved you from these old loves that were destructive and manipulative and were hurting you. And he's saying, and today, even though you're actually God's kid, what you do is you, you leave the arms of God to go and be with your lovers. And he's saying that's actually who you are today. And no matter how far or how kind of far into your journey with Jesus you are, those words of James will always still be true of you. There will always be some corner of your heart that is more in love with the things of the world than the things of God. But he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. Do you understand how freeing it is to be able to walk not just into a church filled with people who are all kind of trying to pretend to be more righteous than they are, but to be able to walk into the presence of God himself, the Holy One, the one who at the core part of you, the one thing you actually long for more than anything in the universe is just approval from him. It's what you're looking for. It's what you want. Do you understand that you have it? You don't have to do anything. You don't have to clean up your life. You don't have to become a different person. He loves you. He gives more grace. Jesus didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. This morning, would we turn back to him? His arms are open wide, and his goal is not to condemn you, but his goal is to humble you so that being a humble, broken person, he would be able to draw near to you. Let's pray. Jesus, I feel like this week you've, you've just met me in such a beautiful way. You've replayed the story of my life, not just the way I used to be, but the way I was this weekend, the way I was last night. 
and you just, you just point it out and you just say what it is. You say, yeah, there are still massive parts of your heart that are way more in love with the world than me. And yet you look at that and you say, and I love you. Would you just turn around from that false love and come back to me? Jesus, would you help us do that this morning? And God, would you help us be people who are truly repentant people? In your name, amen. I wanna actually give us all just kind of some, some space this morning. Um, I don't know if you're the kind of person in this room who, who like, th- you know this and you've thought about this and you're like, yeah, I know this is true of me. Maybe actually like for the very first time, like you're, you're hearing about a depth of failure in your life that you've never actually considered before. Maybe you consider yourself like, oh, I'm actually like a pretty decent person. Wherever you're at on that spectrum, I wanna actually just give you a moment to come before God as you really are. Just the real true you, like take off all the lies, all the masks, everything, and just open up the real version of who you are to God. And in doing that, I want you to bring your sin before him. And I want you to do what he tells you to do. Don't laugh about it. Don't have joy, but actually mourn and weep and be wretched over the reality of your sin. But as you come to God, I want you to feel him say to you, but I have more grace than you have sin. I have more forgiveness than you have failure. And my love for you is stronger than your love for things that are not me. So I want us to just take a minute and just receive grace. And after we do that, we're going to sing.